0: Well, welcome everybody. If you've been here every week, well done. Uh, We're now on number four of the third series of our Way Up course, and we've entitled this one Investigations. I think probably it's true to say that this is a a bit more forensic. Uh, than the other series that we've done. We're actually trying to go around with the magnifying glass and check out stuff, and so there's a bit of detail in it, so hopefully that won't be too difficult to listen to this evening. Where we've got to so far, you remember, we started the series by looking at Noah's Ark. We found the remains of what looks like a boat, probably petrified, slid down the hill in the mountains of Ararat. Amazing, and quite a lot goes with that. So if you haven't seen that, by all means, Uh, Check it out, but not quite now. Uh, Secondly, of course, then we went for the Tower of Babel and talked about the the history according to the Bible of the various peoples that scattered from the uh, Tower of Babel, the, the languages... that that there are in the earth, that are a mystery in themselves, like how did they ever get started, how do you teach a whole people a language, if you haven't got a dictionary, you haven't got literature, you haven't got a vocabulary to give them, how do they all learn it, well the Bible says God gave it to us, God gave languages to the human race, and there's a whole family of them, variety of them all over the world, that has caused the kind of the splitting and the dividing of the nations Uh, all over the world. So that was uh, Tower of Babel. Last week we were looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll remember the the cities of the plain down there in the Jordan Valley where you can find evidence of of whole cities that have apparently been burned and seared with massive fire. I was just actually reading something earlier today saying that they found the remains of, of iron and stuff there that is almost certainly iron implements and tools. You know, it didn't occur there naturally, so it was all part of it when, in the conflagration that happened there. Okay, number four then, tonight we're looking at Joseph in Egypt. Okay, well, everybody knows the story of Joseph in Egypt. That's actually Donny Osmond, by the way, that's not Joseph. Uh, But, you know, it's not every Bible story that gets a musical made out of it and most people, I would suspect, know something of it. It's a little bit distorted from the Bible, but nonetheless, uh, you do get some of the story coming through. The question that we're going to be asking tonight, as with most of it, is did this actually really happen? You know, is this true? Is this just a legend? Is it just something that they picked up out of the Bible and made a, a musical of and so on and so on? Uh, This is a a quote from the cover of a book by David Rowe entitled A Test of Time. And I mean there's loads of quotes like this if you scan around you can find them. Ever since excavations began in the lands of the Bible at the beginning of the last century, that's actually the beginning of the 19th century, not the last century now, uh, biblical scholars have been systematically stripping out Elements of the narratives, the stories of Joseph, Moses, and so on. He quotes a whole number of others and have been consigning them to the realms of myth and folklore. I can testify that that is true. Uh, Certainly, I studied uh, at theological college And you find that even people that are supposed to believe the Bible don't necessarily always believe it. They always tend to hum and ha and say, well, so on and so on and so on. So this has been particularly true about the land of Egypt, and we'll look at that as we go along. So this is what we're going to follow tonight. This is our map, our agenda for the evening. First of all, we're going to just revisit the origin of Egypt. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the origins of the nations and the peoples and how they scattered Uh, But tonight we're just going to mention a bit about Egypt itself. Secondly, we're going to look at the question of chronology, of timing. That is a critical one. It's very hard going. I'm going to try and make it as easy as I can. Debbie said to me earlier, she said, make it simple. I said, so you have no idea how complicated it is to make something simple. (laughs) But anyway, I'm going to try and make it simple. So we're going to look at the chronology Thirdly, we're going to look at the arrival of Joseph in Egypt and the impact of that and read the Bible story uh, from that. Then we're going to look at what we have called the king's chancellor. We found a candidate for Joseph who was the second after the king, a high vizier, a chancellor, the chamberlain, um, quite high ranking and significant. Okay, well you'll have to decide whether you think this guy fits the bill. So that's Point number four, the king's chancellor. And then lastly, we're going to look at a specific complex uh, in the land of Egypt that I believe, and not only me, uh, that is actually the the work of Joseph during the lifetime when he was serving Pharaoh. So those are the five things that we're going to look at. First of all, then, the origin of Egypt I think probably pretty well everybody has agreed that Egypt is one of the oldest civilizations. Some would say the oldest. I don't actually think that because they all come after Babel according to the Bible. But it certainly goes pretty far back there um, from what we can tell in the Bible story. Um, I mean, I think probably modern man has a bit of a love affair with Egypt. Um, it's a, well I, I can think of some people that certainly do um, so many of the, of the massive monuments that are spread across it are a testimony to this culture they've left more remains in Egypt certainly more visible remains famous ones than almost any other place the pyramids themselves are the only remaining great wonder of the world that is still there and are themselves they say you have to see them to believe them I've never seen them but they are huge like, like mountains so modern audiences are fascinated by Egypt. If they do a, a round of um, you know, to the various museums, they'll get people queuing up to see the the golden mask and that kind of thing. You've got legends of mummies and curses. I can't remember how many films I've seen that have got mummies in them that are pretty horrible and do all kinds of terrible things. And uh, of course, we all know the curses on Howard Carter and Tutankhamen, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's. It's kind of in the culture, if there's one bit of archaeology that modern man gets interested in, and I wouldn't say there's a lot, but if there's one bit, then I think it's probably Egypt. And of course, even Indiana Jones manages to go to Egypt to try and find the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, although I'm going to be telling you later in the series that it's not there, it's somewhere else. Okay. Okay. Uh, So distinctive is Egypt, it's got its own branch of learning. Archaeology covers general things, but Egyptology, of course, uh, covers specifically the land of Egypt. So Egypt is a significant place to visit. And I I did have a debate in my spirit whether to put this one in. Originally we were going to have six, and this one wouldn't have been a part of it. And then I decided to put it in, and then I nearly took it out, and so, oh dear, backwards and forwards. Anyway, you've got it anyway, and the reason why I put it in at the end is because I do believe that, uh, that Egypt is a very significant factor in the mindset of modern man, and we need to take a look at that from a biblical point of view. Now, from a biblical timeline, the Bible says that, that Egypt was founded by Mizraim. You remember we, we got that on the, the maps and so on. Uh, last week, uh, Mizraim was the son of Ham, uh, the grandson of Noah. So he was obviously one of the senior uh, figures in the uh, spreading out after the flood. Uh, none of the great buildings that we now see, of course, would have been there then, like those ones there that I've got with the sphinx and the pyramid in the background. They would not have been there then, but I thought, well, it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice misty romantic picture of Egypt, so I'll put it in there Anyway. Abraham would have been born in these early days. This is kind of his period. I mean, obviously, he's a few, he's a few down from Mizraim. <clears throat> but interestingly enough, I did a count of his, of his uh, birth and so on. He's only about two or three hundred years after the flood himself. So he's not that far behind the, 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 the very earliest sort of forefathers that we find mentioned in the Bible. Would have been about 130 years after Babel. Um, uh, that uh, Abraham was born and Egypt would still have been quite primitive. And interestingly enough, you do get a bit of a sense of this in the Bible. So I thought I'd read a couple of passages which are not directly... Um, relevant to what we're doing tonight but it does give you a bit of a, a, an insight because you often think, when you think of Pharaoh, you think of the ones that came later that, you know, were massive country and, you know, pyramids and huge building works and things like that but actually in the, that was a title given to the leaders of the tribes. Pharaoh just means big house. So, so you know, there there were there would have been in the early, there would have been loads of pharaohs. There were pharaohs. they were the leaders over the large houses. As the as the human race began to scatter and spread, they turned into large houses, a bit like feudal England you know, where you've got a baron in his castle and all the people all around about and so on. And so the the, the human race kind of subdivided into those. So if we go to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. This is not the famine when Joseph was there, of course, this is earlier. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. I mean, she must have, that must have been nice. She would have loved to have heard that. However, what comes after is not quite so nice. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me and will let you live. <laughs> not, not totally chivalrous, I, I think. Uh, say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you, Don't know what's going to happen to you, however. And of course, the expected didn't happen. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. This was not going to be a good idea, was it? You could tell that from the beginning. Uh, He treated Abraham well for her sake and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and men servants, mazes, camels. So so he did really quite well out of it but what happened to Sarah? Well, as far as we know, she was okay. But what I found interesting was it implies a society that is not that large. You know, where the, the Pharaoh, who presumably is the leader of the whole thing, hears about a stranger that comes into town with a lovely wife and gathers her up for his harem. So you have to say, this is not a society of several million people. This is, a, this is a small society. It came to Pharaoh's ears by those that were in his crew, uh, that Abraham and his wife had come to town, and the rest, as we say, we followed through. But I thought it was interesting implication that Egypt at this stage in Abraham's lifetime, and Abraham's great-grandfather of Joseph, of course, um, at this stage in things is not huge at all. Um, And then again in Genesis 14, we get an implication here for Mesopotamia. You remember Mesopotamia is where Nimrod started, uh, where the Tower of Babel happened, where the people scattered from, this was probably, this would have been actually the, probably the oldest civilizations, a bit slightly older uh, than Egypt. But, uh, but here in, in Genesis chapter 14, and again we're backtracking, this is when Sodom and Gomorrah are still going. It hasn't, nothing has happened to them at this point. But in 1 to 4 it says, at this time, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, we know Shinar, don't we? Um, Ariok, the king of Elisha, Kedorlaomer the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, went to war against Beer the king of Sodom. So there's a confederacy of peoples from Mesopotamia, including Shinar and down. They kind of gathered together and they were invading uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities uh, of the plain. Uh, and they've got all the names here. We won't bother with that. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the salt sea. We know about that. We heard that last week. Uh, and for 12 years, they've been subject to Kedalea, to but in the 13th year. So the, the, the kings in Sodom and Gomorrah have been paying a tribute to the, the tri- well, tribal leaders, really, the tribal leaders in uh, Mesopotamia. And then they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And they stopped doing it. Uh, okay. Um, and uh, then a little bit later on in the chapter verse 11 the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah all their food and then they went away and they also carried off Abraham uh, Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom and one who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew and now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre the the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abraham. So there was a whole load of Abraham that was there with some pals, and they were there by the oaks of Mamre. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abraham gave chase with a, with a company of 318 men. The Bible actually numbers them. And it says during the night he divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus, and he recovered all the goods and so on and so, so on. Now again, it implies that this is not big stuff. Okay, he caught them by surprise, he invaded them at night. God was on his side. There were a number of things that were working for him. But you have to say uh, it, it does make this confederacy of kings that had that had actually been. Uh, uh, bullying Sodom and Gomorrah, it does make them look considerably smaller than we might otherwise think. So the implication from the Bible is that, this, that we are still in the early days of humanity, that civilizations are still small. Uh, groups are gathered as tribes and clans and families, perhaps in big houses, of course, that, hence the name Pharaoh, because they were the leaders of the big houses that they lived in. So that early stage was very much like that. So in the biblical timeline... Uh, Abraham, therefore, is a part of this, and Joseph, who is his great grandson, therefore would have arrived. I had to work out all the birth dates and everything to get to this, so there you go. Uh, he would have arrived about 1740 BC. Now, as you'll see, that does not fit in at all uh, with Egyptian chronology. If you look for Joseph, in Egypt in 1740 BC by any of the normal chronologies that we have, you can't find him. And of course, that's exactly what uh, David Rowell says a little bit later on. The ancient name of Egypt, according to the Bible, was Mizraim. And, uh, and of course, it still is to this day, which is really quite interesting. I mean, there's the bank of Mizra, like Mizraim, with a bit knocked off the end. So that name, incredibly has traveled since, Miz, since the time really of the, uh, of the Tower of Babel and the spreading of the people. So it's over 4,000 years since that name was there and it's run through. And of course, there's loads of companies. If you look up Mizra, there's a, an airline, there's a travel agency, there's all kinds of things. If you were in Egypt, you'd probably see them all over the place. So it is very much. So the name of Mizraim um, is definitely the name of the guy that founded it all in the beginning. But you don't find it in most of the Egyptian histories. Now, the first dynasties, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We don't actually know all that much about them. The first dynasties one and two, uh, the remains are not that outstanding. I mean, that one that you've got there, that's, uh, that's about as outstanding as they get. You know, So you find these crumbly ruins of mud bricks and so on. The first uh, leader of, uh, of Egypt in the chronologies that we've got is a guy called Menes, and he's generally reckoned the, the first one, and, and certainly one of the historians reckons that he, that, that was actually Mizraim. I, don't, I can't be sure about that, but it was he that unified Egypt. I mean, obviously, they're all scattered up the river, and he started to go, gather the clans and the families and the houses together and brought them together as one people. So it's that same tendency as Nimrod that you find a, again and again. But at this point, there are no great monuments, mainly because they hadn't worked out how to work in stone it's all mud bricks you remember how the Tower of Babel was mud bricks it looks like Egypt had the same technology and no doubt they had the availability that they could use in order to do that Uh, that there is called a mastaba, and they used those for burials it was those that eventually became the pyramids and started to go higher and higher and uh, make the pyramids but certainly in this early stage you've got loads of these all scattered around and they look a little bit uh, worn out so not a lot there one thing that i did come across at a place called abydos which i thought was really interesting that there were 14 wooden boats that had all been they'd been kind of put in sheds and buried they're all all under the sand you know they have to dig nearly everything up from under the sand 14 boats i mean they are quite big i mean that that is the remains of them as far as i can tell i looked it up on google and that's the picture that i got so i'm assuming that those are some of the 14 boats that were why did they why did they have whopping great big boats like that uh, for the pharaohs and the leaders and the people and some have suggested that the whole world in these early years was paranoid about the flood coming back again certainly we get that with nimrod they were building towers all over the place we're trying to get out of it although god said i'm not going to do that anymore yet somehow they, they, they didn't believe God. Um, and that's, of course, quite a common phenomenon. Um, so those, then, are the first dynasties. Now, what, then, are the, of the chronology? Okay, I'll do the best I can with this, so bear with me, and we'll try and work our way through it. There are two major challenges to the Bible, I would say, in the 20th century, in recent history. The reason why churches are emptied and the Bible is often practically ignored is for these reasons. No, nobody's, nobody's ever said, let's take a vote on whether we believe in God or not. God has just slowly gone by default and these are the reasons. Number one, you, those of you who know me won't be any surprised about that, Darwin's theory of evolution, which, which put forward the idea that the Earth had been going for millions of years and the human race for hundreds of thousands of years minimum and even a million years so on now is the latest idea. So Darwin's theory of evolution completely shot a hole in, in a biblical um, time t- timeline and t- worldview. Secondly, the chronology of Egypt. That was a, and it was like a double whammy. In the 19th century, the world was already becoming secularized because of Darwin and already beginning to think, do we actually believe the Bible anymore or not? And then Egyptology took off. And everybody was fascinated by it, and of course they started getting these chronological dates that just did not fit in with the Bible. And of course, as we've already heard, loads of the, the people, that were archaeologists and even biblical scholars were, were finding all sorts of reasons why you could no longer take the Bible seriously. You could, you could treat it as a spiritual book, you could take lessons out of it, but you, you couldn't take it literally. Now the problem with that is the Bible is full of chronology. The Bible is probably if it's anything apart from God's revelation, it is a history book. It's got loads of stuff really about the histories of the nations and it is very tight. You can't easily muck it around. You know, it gives lengths of lives and birthdays and babies and who married who and so on and so on and events and they're all they're all it is actually the most accurate and detailed historical document anywhere in the world we've got it we've got it on in our houses and we never actually look at it but i have to say to you it is an amazing book it's become discredited by people that that probably ought to know a bit better of that Uh, so the bible then was it was heading for a for a smash You know, if you start tinkering with chronology, and loads of Christians are doing this all the time and don't realise actually what damage they're doing. Um, You can't do that. It's either true or it isn't true. If it isn't true, abandon it. Go home and do something else. But if it is true, then you've got to stake your life on it. Okay. So what do we know then? Here's a few things. First of all, less than we think. I mean, you have to say Egyptian chronology is, is is a maze. It's a it's a nightmare. I'm not surprised. Most people just let it pass and by and don't think about it. Um, all the dating in Egypt, as far as I can see, is fixed by the dates and the reigns of the pharaohs. But nobody actually quite knows what are the dates and the reigns of the pharaohs because there's no absolute dating system. There's nothing to anchor it from. There's nothing to say when that is in relation to something else and so on. Uh, several, of course, of the pharaohs were ruling at the same time. There were pharaohs in the upper Egypt and pharaohs in the lower Egypt. There was often a pharaoh and then a sub-pharaoh, and then another pharaoh and another sub-pharaoh, as we'll see next week. If you can manage another week of this next week, uh, we'll see a bit of that next week, where you start to find that, that at any one time there could be four pharaohs, all called pharaohs. And of course, as we know, it means large house. That's not exactly surprising, is it? Um, So that even when they became, you know, pretty big people, uh, there was still often more than one of them. What is even more complicated, they changed their names during their career. Why would you do that? You know, I mean, I got a name when I was born and I'm keeping it all the way through. But they didn't, according to a a new job that they got, they got another name. And you'll find that it's reflected a a little bit in the Bible, but we also uh, find it in the history books. So so actually tracing one from another and finding your timeline through it is phenomenally difficult. And uh, one writer said there are no absolute dates for anything. You pays your money and you take... Now, you wouldn't think that. You'll get authoritative programs on television that make it sound really certain and really cut and dried until somebody comes with another theory and says, oh, that theory was wrong. That theory that they told you last time on the telly was absolutely certain. We're all agreed about that. That's now, we're not so certain about that at all. So you, you do need a bit of a healthy dose of scepticism when thinking about these things. The first historian of Egyptian history was a guy called Manetho, And he wrote a book called... Uh, what do you, how do you say that? Egyptiki, Egyptiaka. Egyptiaka. I've been practising that all week and I still can't say it. <laughs> Anyway, you can read it up there. It's it's really the history of Egypt. Uh, he was an Egyptian. He lived in Alexandria around about three 300 BC. Now remember, 300 BC is an awful long time after the times we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about um, Egypt going back several thousands of years, uh, he was way after the event even then. So he was, uh, you know, I mean, he did an amazing job, I have to say, but uh, he was limited uh, what he could do and it was Manetho who worked out and, and listed the dynasties of Egypt and it's interesting that it's his plan and pattern that modern archaeology and Egyptology has w- been working to ever since a guy that wrote all those years ago and had all the kind of limitations of that. He was the one that formed the framework for Egyptology and he reckoned that Egypt was founded between 3,000 to 4,000 BC, making it the oldest culture in the world, older than any others according to his date. However, that is his date and that, causes course, a disparity with the Bible of something like 1,500 years. If the flood came 2,300, then obviously we're, we're way off the ballpark for, for that. Now, that, as we said, fitted in with the 19th century views that have been affected deeply by Darwin. And, of course, most uh, scholarly commentators weren't troubled by that. They simply adjusted their opinions and said, well, the Bible must have got that wrong. But we always thought that anyway. Uh, So you can see it was a, was a, a, a perfect storm. Now, when it comes to classic archaeology today... Uh, we probably all think that it's fairly hard science, that it's definite, you know, that they kn- these guys know. When they sound so certain, they must know. Well, mm, not really so. I mean, a lot of it is, is done with detective work, and I have to say, some of the guys that do it are, are ingenious. You know, they can construct whole theories off a pot. Yeah, And you think, how did you get that off that? Um, So I would say archaeology in general and Egyptology in particular is actually quite, if you can call it that way, it's a soft science, it's a forensic science, it's a science where you look for clues, where you don't have hard facts, you can't necessarily specifically say, you have to do the best you can. Huge assumptions. You have to make assumptions and try to put together a thesis and so on. And that's what these guys are doing all the time in scholarly circles. So often there is ignorance regarding the reigns, as we've already said. The kings overlap one another, so there are several kings on at the same time. The records are incomplete and hieroglyphics are not easy. You know, if you ever looked, I'll show you in a minute, if you ever looked at a rock with hieroglyphics on you think, how does anybody make anything out of those? Um, and they're often, the rocks are worn and bits are chipped off, so and that's all you've got. You know, there's no, there are no books, apart from Anitho, that wrote, there's no books out of ancient Egypt at all. It's all engraved on the rock and on steles and on various, um, in various caves and tombs and so on and so on. So at the end of the day, a lot of it is inspired guesswork. Uh, so much so that this man, David Rohl, he was the guy that I quoted from earlier, Uh, wrote this book um, which he called A Test of Time and it became a TV series on Channel 4 but you probably didn't see it, it wouldn't have grabbed you, think oh I must see that Um, but uh, interesting, he is a chronology specialist, an Egyptologist and chronology is his bag so he does this all the time. And, uh, and he said that you go through it and, and the writers would often say there's little evidence of biblical characters, you can't find them, etc, etc. But the reason why is because archaeologists are tending to look, not in the wrong place, but the wrong time. They've got the time wrong. And that's why he calls his book A Test of Time. He says it's all about the chronology. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't know whether I'd agree with everything he says, but he's certainly a fresh voice that is looking at it and saying, look, we've got all this stuff that we got from Manetho, we've got this stuff that's been handed down for 2,000 years, but actually we really need to look at that and recheck it and so on. In the meantime, millions of people have, run, have thrown away the Bible and rejected their faith as a result of this. Uh, it's heartbreaking, really, which is why I wanted to sort of at least take a look at it. OK, well, the first area that was settled then in Egypt is generally reckoned to be Memphis. That's not Memphis in Tennessee. That's Memphis uh, in the uh, upper uh, reaches of the Nile. Uh, in Egypt, uh, you, uh, you, can you see? Uh, I think I've made that dot a bit small. Oh, no, you can see it. Can you see that dot? Uh, roughly about that place, uh, Memphis is there. Uh, if you look just below that, there's Heliopolis, uh, or on, and that actually mentions in the Bible passage that we'll read in a couple of minutes. So the centre of Egypt at this early stage was probably here in what you, what is called Upper Egypt, you know, nor, more northerly um, uh, Egypt. But later on, of course, it spread down to Thebes and other places, Luxor and so on, down the, the, down the Nile, but the early settlement was here, and that's where all the uh, action takes place that we're looking at, tonight uh, when it comes to joseph so on a biblical timescale joseph would have arrived during the first few dynasties uh, you know obviously after abraham abraham came right at the very early stage this would have been a couple of hundred years after that it's thought around about 1700 bc so okay number three the arrival of joseph for this we're going to turn to the bible And read verses that I would—I suspect will be familiar. So I might run over a few bits if I can. uh, Though you can always read them up uh, a bit later on if you want to. Uh, The end of chapter 40 of Genesis, um, uh, the book of Genesis, it says that you remember Joseph had been in prison with a couple of guys, and he'd had he'd interpreted dreams for them, and one had uh, one had survived and one had died. Um, and he said, remember me, and it says in verse 23, the the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. And when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream, and he was standing by the Nile, and when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds, and after them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile, and they stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt, I, now you wouldn't normally expect that. You would expect the good, beefy, strong cows would make mincemeat of the little, thin, weedy ones. But it didn't happen like that in Pharaoh's dream. The, the thin, the thin, um, uh, uh, the thin uh, gaunt cows uh, ate uh, the seven uh, other cows. And then Pharaoh woke up, and then he fell asleep again, and then he had his second dream. And seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy full ears. And then Pharaoh woke up and it had been a dream. And in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the cupbearer confesses. He says, actually... Master, when I was in prison, there was a guy there that interpreted our dreams and he was spot on right. Uh, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph in verse 14 and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. There's a man of confidence and faith. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the and so on. So you get the story uh, all over again, and so on. Then verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows, are seven years, the seven good years, and so on and so on and so on. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Well, you know the story, I'm sure. Um, Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and so on. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance, that they should collect all the food of those good years and so on and store it up so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. And seemed good to Pharaoh. So he asked him, Can we find anybody like this man? I expect Joseph is standing there going... No, I'm sure he wasn't. Um, Can we find anybody like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You should be in charge of my palace, and so on. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, and Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, he dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in his chariot. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. I mean, that is that is unprecedented. If we could find that, we found it. You know, there... If there, is no other, there is no other case in history where Pharaoh gave so much of his power and authority to an individual who was a prisoner, who wasn't even royal, who didn't have social standing, who wasn't part of his family. I mean, this is really, when you think about it, this is really phenomenally unusual. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphanath paneah I've been practicing that one. Uh, and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, To be his wife. So he married into the priesthood and suddenly became a a high standing dignitary. And Joseph went throughout the the land of Egypt and he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And of course he died, we're told, at 110. So for 80 years, Joseph ruled Egypt. He must have ruled through several pharaohs by the time he finished. He must have become a man of immense stature in the history. So we ought to be able to find him. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. What, what a story of rags to riches. Wow. During the seven years of abundance, jo- Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. <coughs> and Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure, because the years of famine came. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to him, and so he talks about his two sons, um, and so on and so on. Seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. So it was a bit of a global catastrophe that was happening. And because he'd gone there and heard God, Uh, He was ready for it and ready for what would come. So if we are going to try and find Joseph anywhere in the kind of mishmash of Egyptian history and chronology, we need to find a number of things. And I've put them A, B, C and D because I thought I'll try and trace them through and see if we're finding them. You've got to weigh it up and decide whether you think so. First of all, we've we've got to find a king who has a dream. They're pretty definite there. and I mean, obviously, it may not record it, but if we could find that, that would be, that would be good. Uh, secondly, we've got to find a dynamic new leader, a leader that is not only a new leader, but is a leader of immense stature and gathers that over an 80-year period and makes a huge impact on the land of Egypt. Thirdly, we've got to find evidence of a fair bit of building. I mean, if you're going to build storehouses to house, you know, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of grain to feed a whole people, then you really do need to do some, a fair bit of civil engineering and building and so on and so on to do that. So that's C. And then D, we need to expect to find Egypt looking even more prosperous than it was. We, it looks like through Joseph's, Joseph's life, Egypt takes a, takes a quantum leap up to a next level of prosperity, so we should see something of that. So he he should really have made a mark. Okay, it's not like a flood or something like that, but it should have made a mark. So hopefully we will do that. Well, what about now? number A then? A king with a dream. Well, it just so happens there is this uh, this rock uh, on an island in the in the upper reaches of the Nile. It's one of the larger islands in the. It's quite famous. It's called the, the, the Famine Stele, or Joseph's Rock. So choose, you know, I don't know who, cho- who chose the names for it, but this is an excerpt from that thing. Um, it's attributed to Pharaoh Joseph, who was the second pharaoh in the third dynasty. So it's about the right time, it's fairly early on in the history of Egypt, he was obviously an established king at that point. It's what he says, I was in distress on the great throne and I asked him who was the chamberlain, Imhotep, the son of Tar. I mean, Tar is the, is the Egyptian great high god. It is the living god uh, above all gods as far as I've been able to gather. While the king slept, the Nile god revealed himself to Pharaoh in a dream and promised that the land would yield abundantly for seven years after a seven-year drought. Can you see anything slightly at variance in that? What? Oh, you smarty pair. It's the wrong way round. Uh, Joseph's dream was was seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And actually, if you think about it, that's the only way it would work. If you started with seven years of famine, they're all dead. You know, given seven years of plenty after seven years of famine, not actually going to be a lot of help. So they've got it wrong. I mean, this, is, this was inscribed a long way afterwards, and it was inscribed by the priests that were on that island because they were reminding the Pharaoh that they had been granted tax-free status as a result of Pharaoh Joseph's promise way back when, when Joseph was there. It's interesting. So down through the years, the priests in Egypt never paid tax, because I mean, it's here in this passage. Because uh, J- Joseph, and uh, Joseph, of course, was also po- uh, he was also the pri- uh, the son of the, of the had uh, uh, married the priest of On's daughter, and some believe he would become himself a priest within the temple there serving God. Anyway, so, the, okay, it's the wrong way round, but you have to say that is quite amazing. Now, is that it? Is that a smoking gun? I think so. Uh, it's, the only, it's the only thing that you can find in the history of Egypt which tells of a dream with seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. It's just gotten the wrong way round. Well, who was Joseph then? Uh, that, well, we've already said who he was. He was a well-established monarch, uh, he came from the third dynasty, around about 300 years from the start, and at the time when Egypt was functioning as a uh, now as a fairly stable nation. And uh, that's another statue of him. Uh, they all get you know getting, He didn't look that good, but then he's getting old. Um, and uh, but interestingly, on the base of that statue, which is Pharaoh Josa, it is inscribed with the name of Josiah and Imhotep. It's this bloke again. Imhotep, the chancellor, the king of the king of Lower Egypt, king chief under the king, administrator of the great palace, hereditary lord, high priest of Heliopolis, Imhotep, the builder, the sculptor, the maker of stone vases, and anything else that we could add on. It, it's amazing. Some of these people have whopping great long titles. You know, they add it all up. I don't know why they put maker of stone vases but he was obviously um, very very varied in the gifts that he had so that brings us on to number four okay you okay so far we've only got five and we're now on four so that's not bad the king charles that is uh, one of the many um reliefs and and uh, statues and sculptures of Imhotep uh, and it, because there are so many of them it look it could it could well be a reasonable likeness. This is what it says in Encyclopedia Britannica, so that must be right. He acquired a great reputation for his wisdom and learning, although certain Egyptologists regarded him as legendary. They regarded him as legendary because he was so amazing. You know, he's been called the, Leo de, the Leo de, Leonardo da Vinci of Egypt. You remember, Leonardo da Vinci was rightly regarded as a genius. Um, But actually, they say this guy surpasses him by far. He was an amazingly gifted guy on many different and separate um, areas. Uh, There can no longer be the slightest doubt that Imhotep was a historical personage. He was a vizier, architect, chief ritualist, sage and scribe under the powerful king who built the celebrated step pyramid of Saqqara. Saqqara is the first pyramid in Egypt. It was built under Joseph by Imhotep. How interesting. Uh, they called him the treasurer of the king of lower Egypt and the administer of the great palace. Just to add a couple more titles in for him. Now the question that I'm going to ask now is could um, Imhotep be Joseph? Could they be one and the same man? Well, have a look at the comparison of the two, and I've gathered a few things together on this slide. Uh, Joseph, of course, was the second after Pharaoh. He was very high ranking according to what the Bible says of him. Secondly, we know he was not of the royal family. He'd been taken out of nowhere and suddenly catapulted into his position when he was 30 years old. Thirdly, he'd interpreted a dream from Pharaoh. All this is pretty clear. We know that. Uh, His name meant the God who lives and speaks he actually was involved with the physicians. And if we were to look in uh, Genesis chapter 50 and, uh, and verse 2, uh, it looks like they were in charge of doing all the embalming and all kinds of other things like that. So uh, when his father uh, uh, um, died... Uh, Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel, so the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required. So he was obviously in charge of the physicians, interestingly. And he was noted for his dreams. Well, I mean, that's a pretty good list. Uh, Imhotep was also the second after Pharaoh. He suddenly appears in history. There is no... There's nothing prefiguring him. He's just there. There are no as statues of him in the early years when Pharaoh was uh, a younger man, he just suddenly comes when Pharaoh is middle-aged. He interpreted dreams. The name uh, Imhotep, I mean, Hotep means the voice of. So it initially it meant the voice of Im. But I don't, nobody knows who Im is. It's Im, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, later he became known as Tahotep, and And that, that did have more meaning. That meant the voice of God. So it's a bit similar to the God who lives and speaks. Um, he was also a physician and later became acknowledged as the God of healing. So, I mean, this guy Imhotep has immense significance. He was often said to heal people in their dreams. We go down for a few more things. He was re- Joseph was revered for his wisdom. He married the priest of On's daughter, according to the Bible, and he lived 110 years where well, we've already said that and he was buried in Israel. They, they took him out, of, of what, they embalmed him, and then when they returned, uh, they took him back to Israel. Imhotep was revered for his wisdom. He was a priest of On himself, so there's a definite connection here with Heliopolis, or On, the sort of spiritual centre of Egypt at that time, and he lived 110 years. I thought, well, that's neat. You know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Things are starting to fit together. And in Sakara, there is a whole complex under the ground. There's a lot of it on top. There's a massive complex. I re- they reckon that there are several miles of corridors and tunnels underneath the, the land there. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, in the centre of the whole thing, there is a, a stone sarcophagus that is empty. There is nothing in it. It hasn't been robbed. There's just nothing in it. Okay, well, what about the name uh, Imhotep? Jo- well, uh, as we say, they did change their names a lot and they often changed them when they got a different job. So Joseph was his given name, but we know the Bible says he had at least one other name that Pharaoh gave him, uh, zaphnath paneah uh, It may well be that he got a third name uh, following the famine of Imhotep. We don't know, but a lot of other things fit, so it seems quite likely. And then Ptahhotep, was the name that was given to him by later history, and he became famous. <coughs> For an example of the same thing happening, we all know that fellow, that's Tutankhamun. Well, quit while you're winning, because these were his other names that he acquired, and he was only a young bloke. Um, but they get it, you know, they acquire a new job, and they get a different name. I suppose it's a bit like royalty, really, except you just generally put Duchess, or Lord, or Duke, or something in front of the name. But, uh, but um, uh, these, they just get a whole new name. I'm not even going to try and... To pronounce those names there. But you get the picture. So it's not at all impossible that he could have been given this other name. There is also this medical connection that we've hinted at. Later on, he is regarded as the god of healing. People would come to to Memphis to be healed by Imhotep. They would actually go down into the tunnels under Saqqara. And, uh, and lay down to sleep and pr- praying that they would be healed uh, in, their, uh, in their dreams. They would make a sacrifice first and then go down into the holy place. While they slept, he came to them in their dreams and healed them. So they said. They, these were the legends that accumulated around him. We only know the early part. We don't know what then happened. He was later known as Ptahotep, the voice of God. See. C. The third thing that we would want to find, so we found, we found a king who dreams, we found a, a, a real significant uh, hero figure, literally a Leonardo da Vinci of the ancient world. We also find a pretty massive building. That's, uh, that's a picture of it there. That may be the only bit that's actually still surviving, and, but we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, looking at that in, in a moment or two. It is actually the first actual pyramid that was built in Egypt. It precedes all the great pyramids and all the others and it could well have been built by, well it was built by Imhotep could well have been uh, built by Joseph. It's the first building that is built in Egypt uh, made out of limestone. Up until then they've been all mud bricks. But you remember we said last week Sodom and Gomorrah had limestone technology. We think that they were pretty much limestone of course when they were burnt they formed the, uh, the, 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 re- the residue that we found there. Um, but, uh, but Egypt, up until then, with all their mastabas and their early um, remains, they were mud-brick. That's why there's not much left of them left. Um, but after Joseph, it looks like they started building. So this was the first one. So this is a very significant... I mean, archaeologists all go there to gaze upon this. Um, and the technology, they actually say that the technology must have come from Mesopotamia. I don't know why they think that the Egyptians couldn't have just invented it themselves. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? Building in blocks of stone. But anyway, they say that, and it's interesting. It may well be that it was. And that Joseph actually brought the knowledge of that with him, having come from Canaan. And he was known as the Builder. This is the complex of Saqqara. It, it looks different every direction you see it from. But from this lower corner, you can see that there was originally a massive high wall surrounding the whole place, which is interesting. And in the in the uh, there in the middle of it, you can see a very small door uh, for entry. Uh, so. It, you have to say, did it have another purpose? Well, I'm going to suggest it did. The location of, the, if we see Memphis and Heliopolis, we've already seen that. Then there is Saqqara, there, right smack in the middle of them. And uh, and you may say, well, why did he now? Why did he branch out into building? Well, um, uh, there is evidence that this was originally a grain distribution centre. Uh, it almost it seems to me, and I think it'd be a bit amusing. Uh, if, the, um, uh, if the pyramid was a bit of a, an added extra, you know, it was an afterthought that they put in. Maybe they just had a big pile of rubbish there and they thought, well, I know, let's turn it into a pyramid. No, I mean, I don't know. Um, but uh, But certainly this is the first pyramid... Uh, that is built and it's built what looks like it had another purpose you can see there that the wall is fairly bedraggled and not much of it there but originally the wall would have surrounded the entire complex, you have to say why would that be so Um, uh, it may well be that this is the only one that is still remaining of the grain centre, obviously they had them in every city but this would have been the biggest one because this was the centre, the headquarters of the culture and so on and so on where Pharaoh was living uh, massive excavations underneath we've talked about, and they spo- it may be that they put they they piled up the spoil and and turned it into something uh, what they thought beautiful. Interestingly, that pyramid is known locally as the prison pyramid. So it does raise the question: Did did Joseph actually build? the store place originally on the site of the prison where he'd been imprisoned. You remember he was imprisoned uh, by Potiphar in the House of the Guard and so on. So it'd be very interesting, the local information that tends to come through. There's an aerial view of it and you can see along what looks like the southern flank. I'm not sure how it's orientated, but you can see the kind of the, the wall shape and then down in the right hand corner the high bit of the wall uh, that is still remaining there in the other buildings but of course there's a there's an equal amount underground that you don't actually see uh, there's the um, the uh, the the ground plan of the pyramid and there I thought that was quite a handy Uh, model and you can pick out a few uh, features on that first of all the doorway, what we've already said is very small and it seems to me only one doorway that was ever in this pyramid, which of course if if you were in a starvation time and you got an awful lot of food there then you would need a fairly secure lock up to put it in, so that would I would imagine that that would probably be repeated. So prisons were probably quite a good place to use for storing grain initially, and then, of course, as they got more and more, they had to develop it and grow it and build it and so on and build what we now see. Uh, There's the entrance hall down there, and we'll look at that in a minute, where people would have come in and may well have bought their grain, and then there along the back, in the wall, there are built what look like storage bins. And again, for me, that's that's the smoking gun. Uh, That does look... I can't think what else it is. I mean, the normal thing is if you find anything you don't understand, you say, well, it was obviously... um, it was for a burial. But, I mean, you're not going to want to bury somebody in these things. They're whopping great big bins, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, There's the entrance hall, the way in, and between each of the columns there's a little sort of a a space where you could get people sitting in order to take people's money and their orders and so they could then go on and get their stuff. So it was all well organised. These are the storage bins. There's a whole row of them. I mean, here, I can't, couldn't see that on the main diagram, but there's one above and one below, and they're all joined together into that one main hopper at the bottom. So they all feed into uh, the one, which I presume is the one that they take out of. That's a diagram of, of Saqqara, <laughs> which I was able to find, uh, which shows the bins and the way they run into one another. You see the bins uh, along the... Uh, I'll point that out there. There's a row of them there and then there's they all run into this one here uh, that is the the collection bin where you, you've got all the, the, the grain come into. What's even more interesting, they found the, the remains of bits of grain and stuff, even now still, down the bottom. I mean, if you've got yeah, that grain, to get everywhere. You never get rid of it. There's one of them. That is a 30 foot by 40 foot, a 90 foot deep. Now, nobody's going to need that, unless they're very tall, uh, for their burial. There's and There's a whole row of these in a row. Now, to me, that is looking... Quite likely. Now, of course, if you put all the puzzle together and you fit it together, then it, it makes this whole thing look like a quite a significant impact uh, in the history of Egypt. There's the the main uh, feeder one that they all come down into, and you could see they've got stairs down it where you can go down to the bottom uh, if the uh, if it runs low. So you get all the all the the feeder the feeder bins come down into the main bin that they uh, give to people. Very, very... I mean, Joseph was a smart bloke. He worked all this out and built it and engineered it and uh, so on. Nearby, as we've said, there's a massive complex underneath, and that is interesting in itself. It's reckoned there is up to a million stuffed ibis uh, all the, uh, underneath. Um, I, th- I suspect that was later. My own view is, I can only, you know... I, I, I got it from somebody else, but my own view is that originally these were storage galleries for all the food that they had. They didn't only have grain, they had other food and everything. They were geared up for things. So under the the ground, where it was safe from the sun and the heat, uh, they had massive storage galleries. But later on, of course, they began to be adopted and they were filled with these massive, uh, a million stuffed, what do you want a million stuffed ibis? Uh, Right at the heart of it was already said there's an empty... Uh, coffin um, that, uh, that that was actually I mean and they are they are quite expensive they don't give those away um, but there was nobody in it um, the whole place it became associated with worship and healing it became a major shrine that people came to long after Joseph had gone and here um, along the bottom uh, in the thing there is a, a freeze which is quite unique of starving people do you see that all along there Normally, the the Egyptians did not advertise starving people in their culture. Uh, So it's the one place there at Saqqara in the underneath galleries uh, of that place. Okay, D, my last bit now. Uh, Prosperity in Egypt. We said he made Egypt prosperous according to the Bible. And it was for hundreds of years, actually. I mean, that's a picture of Luxor. Luxor. Uh, I think that's right, isn't it? I took my Egyptian... Yeah, that that looks so. But I mean, all the way up the Nile, there are these incredible... um, the incredible testimony to the wealth of Egypt. And generally we think, and normally they would say, well, that is simply because they were very smart people and they got their act together in their culture uh, and they were able to do that. Um, But uh, I want to suggest to you there is another story behind this and it was that Joseph actually initiated the golden age of Egypt. He made Egypt wealthy. I mean, if we had time, we'd read through. The people came. I mean, from then onwards, everybody had to give a tenth of their income to the government. So you might not think it's so good, but, I mean, he became. Because, you see, they, actually, they sold all their land. All the land came to Pharaoh. Because nobody got any land, they were all starving. So they all gave, you know, it's all here in the Bible, like, I won't read it all, but they all, they all brought their land to, into Pharaoh. And then Joseph said, Okay, but you can keep your land, you keep working your land, but as a, as a payment for what you got, you can give me, I think it was 10%, it might have been 5%, I'm not, uh, 20%, I'm not sure. But anyway, a proportion of what you owe, what you give, you give to Pharaoh. And that happened thereafter. Apart from the priests, the priests were exempt from that. And this is, you know, like 2,000 years later, they were still writing it down, the story of, of Imhotep and so on, just to, just to remind Pharaoh that they were immune from the tax. But everybody else paid tax, but not the priests. They did not pay tax. So, so Egypt became phenomenally wealthy as a result of this uh, famine. You could say also that it wasn't even just the genius of, uh, of Joseph, it was the blessing of God uh, on that land. God blessed uh, that land that had actually welcomed his people there and given them a safe haven, haven for hundreds of years afterwards. Interestingly, you could make a case to say, and we'll see this next week, Moses brought the end of the Golden Age. Not not completely. I mean, Egypt carried on still, but it suffered a severe blow during the time of Moses um, uh, because Pharaoh, of course, went in rebellion against God and and turned God away. Now, I find that really interesting take on history, that the way that nations respond to God may dramatically affect their destiny. That it is God that raises up and puts down. I mean, we think we do it all by our own cleverness, but it is the activity of God in history, which is not a kind of a minor thing. You know, to me, it's a minor thing on the edge. You know, we're doing our politics. Come on. You know, God is not part of that. I mean, we're fighting the virus at the moment. We're doing that. You know, we're looking after global warming. We're doing that. We're not thinking about God. What has God got to do with that? It may be God has got a lot more to do with that than anybody realises. That God is the one that moves through history, that raises up nations, that puts them down. You can certainly see that in Egypt. And there came a point, there came a golden age for Egypt and then a time when they were never quite there again. If you read further on in the Bible, they were constantly being beaten by Nebuchadnezzar and by other leaders at the time. Final little advert, I put that up there. I mean, I actually have the book here. It is a brilliant book. You do have to be a little bit of a nerd to read it, so don't get it unless you feel that you, you, could, you could be that. But it gives you a whole different take on Egypt and on history and on archaeology. It's called The Exodus Case by Linnart Müller. I've got, I've got one. of the, This book cost me over £50 to buy. It's a very heavy book full of pictures and glossy paper. It's quite high quality, but you've got to be committed. I just looked it up on Amazon this afternoon, and there's one going at £86. However, there is also one going at £16, though I have a feeling you're going to have a job to get that one. If I you know, the average price seems to be £40 or £50 for this. Sometimes books can be like gold dust. They can open your mind uh, into a new window and things you never understood before. And if, like me, you're interested in pursuing truth, then that may be something to think about. The Exodus case by Linart Muller. Free of charge completely, there is the way, of course. Yo, uh, to which you're all welcome to uh, to watch, and um, we've got the I didn't mention, but we've got the last one is now online and gone live. Uh, this one I think will have been going live tonight. Uh, so welcome everybody. If you're on Facebook and watching this, it's great to see you, and uh, God bless you. Uh, and this will also be on live on YouTube, God willing, by next week. And next week we should be going on through to look at Moses and the impact that Moses had both on Egypt, but of course on the history uh, generally in the area and beyond, and there's really quite a lot of material on that, so I'm quite looking forward to that Good, thank you everybody, done Oh, thank you Oh, that's good Did anybody record that? Did you get the whoop? Yeah, put the whoop in Okay, lovely. Well, I say we haven't had loads of questions most nights, but we've got a couple tonight. Uh, Some a bit funny. Um, At least I'm assuming this is meant to be funny. Um, First of all, did Joseph meet Mary before Pharaoh or after? Wrong Joseph. (laughs) Okay, so that's a a fun one. Uh, Secondly... um, A couple of these things that I've got here in questions, I did mean to say, uh, was the empty coffin due to Joseph being returned to his own land? uh, Well, it says post-mortem, not post-mortem, but certainly when they did eventually all go back to the land, you'll remember he said, take my body and take when you go back. When you go back to the promised land, he didn't want to be buried in Egypt, so he was only temporarily there. So yes, that is true. So he was taken away, which is why the... Uh, the sarcophagus was empty. There was nobody in it. So that's easy enough. The third one, again, I should have mentioned, but I didn't, uh, was Manetho's dating of Egypt due to debate with another civilization over whom was older. I think probably Nathan who asked this. Pardon? He had a conversation with a Greek historian. He, he did. Uh, well, he also, he also was involved with uh, a guy called Barosus. Who was writing a similar history the same time, about 300 BC, on the history of Babylon? And there was quite a, from what I gather, there was quite a competition among civilizations in those days as to who was the oldest, which you can understand. You know, the, the older the civilization, the greater your credibility. And, you know, you, so, uh, so there was a bit of a tendency to, to inflate dates and increase numbers and get older just as today we uh, we find scientists falling over themselves to say how many millions of years everything is and the more millions of years the better Um, so it was even in those days except generally they didn't go for millions they just they just tried to inflate their histories uh, as much as they could so yeah I meant to say that so thanks very much for that Uh, is there are there any other questions now Conway there was a man in 1949, he was Jewish, but he wasn't a believer and he wrote <coughs> a very controversial book, The World's Collision. Oh yeah, Belico- Velikovsky, yeah. I know he said some interesting things. I hadn't known that he'd said that, so that's interesting. Yes. He, uh... I mean, it, I think it has to be said that time and again through history, the perceived wisdom has been wrong. You know that which everybody thought they knew turned out to be not true. You know they thought that the, the the Earth was the center of the universe, and then they thought the Sun was the center of the universe, and uh, then they thought this, and then they thought that, and you know, and you go back far enough, and you get believing in a flat Earth, etc., etc., etc. And uh, and uh, the, it was the it was the prevailing view. Everybody held the view. So you have to say. Um, really a few strong-minded people or a group of them can easily swing a whole society of people and that has never been more true than today with media you know you can easily do it so you you know I think we've said before you need to have your wits about you and and think carefully and analyze everything and if anybody says well we know this you have to say well how do you know that you know, what is your evidence? What's it based on? What presuppositions are you feeding into that in order to get that? And particularly, you know, for those of us that are believers, when something is contradicting uh, God's Word, I'm, I'm ultra-sensitive uh, now and generally found it's wrong, as far as I can see. And I'm hoping and praying that by the time we get to the end of this course, you will all of you have a really robust sense of how amazingly accurate and uh, and incisive the Word of God is. Rita. Oh, sorry, uh, Rita just asked a question. Uh, did, did the Egyptians believe in one God? Many ancient peoples had one God that was better than all the others, and often behind their multiplicity of gods, uh, they, they did have a sense of a supreme being. It was often remote and distant. It didn't take a lot of... Uh, notice of the affairs of men, but the 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 sort of deities that ruled were often qu- quite human like quite capricious, not always that moral, often had arguments with themselves, and generally speaking, I think it's reckoned that they were um they were they were demigods they were figures that uh, that were what the heroes of old that 's the conclusion I came to, and everything i 'm seeing. Is reinforcing that. So as you say, Japheth um, was was changed into Yapetar or Yapati and so on and so on and, and, and became Jupiter. Um, uh, Noah had a second name which was Janus, Noah Noe Janus, and of course became known as the god Janus. So there's no not necessarily rhyme or reason. You would have thought that Noah would have been if everyone was going to be the top dog god in the new Close flood world, it would be Noah, but that's not necessarily so. So each tribe and people tended to develop their own deity figures and so on. They think Marduk was, the, was from Nimrod. Now, how do you get Nimrod to Marduk? I do not know. But the god of Babylon was Marduk for hundreds of years, really. That was their chief deity. So there was often the concept of a supreme god in the background, but not, he was generally not thought to be active. In many cultures good okay well i think i think well probably that's good i won't keep you unnecessarily but obviously stay around as long as you like um we had a few a couple of people that we know of that were watching live online so that's good so it was good to wave to them and uh, wish them well let's just bow in prayer heavenly father i thank you uh, for the opportunity to look at these things and to look at your word and i my prayer father is that for each of us it will be Uh, encouraging and reinforcing and strengthening and in uncertain days when there's all sorts of uh, untruth uh, swirling around in the market of life we pray father that you would help us to keep our eyes clearly fixed upon you and that you would continue to teach us and help us to pass it on where we can to others because we pray this now pray your blessing on each of us to our homes Uh, and our hearts, and into these coming days, in Jesus' name. Amen.